Well, I'm from San Diego, so I, we, have, we have great weather there. I came here, and I'm like, this is exactly San Diego weather, right? Is this what you have all year round? Yeah. I love it. I love it. I feel right at home. Thank you for that. <laughs> that is really cool. Um, all right. We are going to jump right into our discussion today, talking about the nature of truth and, and how that's really now in question in our culture today. Uh, and also, we'll be touching a little bit on the, the notion of tolerance. And, uh, you know, part of the reason this is significant is because for the first, oh, I don't know, 200 or so years of our country, the United States, uh, Christians were seemed as simply irrational, meaning those people who were not Christians looked at us and said, oh, those people, and, you know, we don't believe what they believe. They're just irrational people. You know, they believe in talking snakes and all kinds of strange stuff. But there has been a shift in our cultures, there's been a change in the way people perceive Christians. And so now in the last 20 years, people see Christians not just as irrational, but as immoral and dangerous. Now, the reason why they say that we're immoral is because they say, well, you Christians make judgments about other people. You say things like abortion is wrong or homosexual activity is wrong. And so you're making assessments, judgments about other people, and this in itself is immoral. Now, the reason they say that we're dangerous is because we teach what's called exclusivism, which is the idea that we think we're right about our convictions, and if we think we're right, then somebody who differs from us would therefore be wrong by definition. And this idea that we're right and so consequently other people would be wrong is a very dangerous idea. Because after all, look at what Islamic exclusivism has brought the world. It's brought terrorism into the world. And so we Christians are dangerous in exactly the same way. In fact, listen to what Rosie O'Donnell, an American TV personality, lesbian, says about this. She says, look, radical Christianity is just as threatening as radical Islam in a country like America. Now you might be thinking, well, I'm, I'm not a radical Christian. I don't even know what that means. But in reality, what she's referring to is anyone who claims to be a Christian and believes what Christianity teaches and tries to live consistently with the commands of Christ, that person would be considered a radical in her mind. Of course, we're just thinking, well, that's what every Christian should be. But you see how she views Christianity as a threat to the country. Bill Maher, who's also a TV personality, a comedian, kind of a political commentator. He's got that show on HBO called uh, Real Time with Bill Maher. He says something similar. He says, organized religion is dangerous and a mass psychosis. Evangelical Christians are usually the ones who are behind everything that represents intolerance and bigotry. And Andrew Sullivan, who many of you may not know, but he's really one of the intellectual forces that was behind the legalization of same-sex marriage in our country. And uh, he's a well-known contributor to kind of political discourse these days as well. And he says that religion and religious certainty is the problem, meaning being certain or confident that our faith is true. When the presidents of the United States and, say, Iran speak as much about God as about diplomacy, we've entered a new dangerous era. So notice what they're saying. We are dangerous. We are immoral. And the question I want to ask, or ask and answer today, this morning, is, is, are they right? Is it true that we are dangerous and immoral? Now, the culture, of course, thinks that's the case. And the reason they think that's the case is because the culture has adopted a philosophy of thinking. 
and is perhaps the most predominant philosophy that pervades all of American society, and indeed much of the West. And this philosophy is known as relativism. Relativism. And in order for me to kind of unpack what relativism is, so that you can understand it and be able to recognize it, I, I have to teach you something about the way two, two kinds of ways that something can be true. Okay? So in order for you to understand relativism, you have to understand two different kinds of ways that something can be true. And uh, in order to illustrate that, I want to share something about my own personal life that has uh, deeply impacted my life more than anything else. Well, I mean, I guess apart from the work of Christ in my life, this thing has impacted me in such dramatic ways that it literally affects me on a daily basis. And I'm, I'm oftentimes moved to tears when I think about this. And it's ice cream. I can't tell you how much I love ice cream. Oh, man. And I can tell you, man, my favorite flavor of ice cream is Haagen-Dazs chocolate peanut butter ice cream. It is just a glorious pairing of chocolate and peanut butter. And uh, yeah, I, I, I personally think this is the best flavor of ice cream. Now, I'm curious. I suspect there's someone in this audience who probably has a different flavor of ice cream. Is anybody here willing to just kind of raise their hand? Well, Mike, look at that. Mike's so bold. You know, it's, it's why he sits in the front, you know, all day yesterday, just kind of staring at me like this, you know. Yeah, so what's your favorite flavor of ice cream? <laughs> chocolate mudslide or, or moose tracks. Okay, all right, so let's go with chocolate mudslide. All right, so let me ask you a question. Would it make sense for me to say that Mike is wrong about his favorite flavor of ice cream? No, right? It wouldn't make any sense because when it comes to flavors of ice cream, you just pick what you like, right? You like mudslide, I like chocolate peanut butter, and we're kind of both right about our personal favorite flavor of ice cream, right? Because this kind of statement that I think this is the favorite flavor of ice cream and you think you have your own favorite flavor of ice cream, this is what we call a subjective truth claim. It is a claim, notice that the word subjective comes from the word subject, which means it is an expression of me, the subject, or Mike, his subject, he being a subject, expressing our personal favorite flavor of ice cream. And of course, the beauty when it comes to ice cream is, again, you just pick what you like. You know, I like chocolate peanut butter, you like moose tracks, whatever. You know, it's fine. Mudslide, I mean. So, yeah, it's, there's no problem. Okay. Now, This is one kind of truth claim. And and by the way, notice also that when it comes to a subjective truth claim, um, if I say the statement, chocolate peanut butter ice cream is the best flavor, it's true when I say it. But if Mike was to say that same sentence, it would be false when he says it. So notice a subjective truth claim can be true and false at the same time, depending on who's saying it. Now, that's a subjective truth claim, but not all truth claims are like that. Let me give you another example of a different kind of truth claim. Imagine for a moment, um, maybe we we had too much ice cream (laughs) during our life, and we acquired uh, the disease known as diabetes. And we went to a doctor, and the doctor told us, hey, insulin is a medicine that helps to control diabetes. Now, would it make sense for me to go to my doctor and say, doc, look, I I appreciate you're a medical doctor, you've gone to school, medical school, you've studied for many, many years, you have lots of experience, and you get this stuff, and I appreciate you're telling me that, it, that insulin helps to control diabetes, but you know, that's just true for you. I mean, it's not true for me. I mean, that, that may be your personal preference to believe that, but it's not my preference, right? Uh, as you can see, that, that wouldn't make any sense. 
right? And the reason it doesn't make any sense is because this is a different kind of truth claim. It's not a subjective truth claim. It's what we call an objective truth claim. And objective truth claims, by contrast to subjective truth claims, are not about the subject, me or Mike or someone expressing their personal preference. Objective truth claims are about something external to us, something that's out there in, in, the, in the world, in the universe. Either an object, but it doesn't have to be a physical object. It can just be an idea as well. But anything out there would be an objective truth claim. And when it comes to these objective truth claims about reality, if something is true out there, it's not just true for the doctor. It's true for me, and it's true for you, and it's true for everybody. Although if that claim is false, then that claim, then that, that the falseness of it is false for everybody. So objective truth claims cannot be true and false at the same time. Because when it comes to medicine, you can't just pick what you like. You have to pick what heals. You have to choose what's true, Okay. That's, what, that's, that's a key difference. Now, in a moment, we're going to take a little test. Now you're thinking, wait a minute, it's Sunday. We don't take tests at church, but we're going to be taking a test. So, but I, I, look, I, uh, I, I'm sympathetic to how you feel. I don't like taking tests either, so I'll give you an opportunity for review. All right. So we're going to first review subjective and objective truth claims, and then we'll take a little test over it. And this will affect uh, how much money is drawn from your bank accounts for tithing each month. So just be aware. <laughs> You want to pass as well, okay? So, subjective truth claims. Quick review. They express a person's subjective internal preference, kind of what you feel inside, all right? Objective truth claims are uh, an expression about an external object or an idea. Again, don't think just physical object. It could be justice is, a, is, an, is an idea that's out there external to us, okay? Subjective truth claims can be true and false at the same time, right? Uh, Mike likes, uh, he says, my favorite flavor of ice cream is Moose Tracks or Mudslide. And I say that same thing. It's false when I say it, but true when he says it, right? But objective truth claims cannot be true and false at the same time. Either they're true for everybody or they're false for everybody, right? Subjective truth claims aren't really something that can be tested. So if you want to know what my favorite flavor of ice cream is, you would just ask me, hey, what, what do you like? And I, I tell you, right? But that's not the way with objective truth claims. Objective truth claims, because they're not an expression of a personal preference, because there's something that's out there, we can kind of third-party test them. So if I was to make the claim, there's a pink elephant outside in the parking lot right now, okay, that's an objective truth claim. It's a claim about reality, about external reality, not a personal preference. And so we could all walk outside and look and see, no, there's no, <laughs> there's no elephant. Alan's you know, lost his marbles. Uh, and so it's something that we can test. Subjective truth claims, and this is really the key to identifying them. Changing your opinion about it changes the truth about it. So if I was to change my opinion about chocolate peanut butter ice cream and thought, say, Moose Tracks was the best, right? If I then said chocolate peanut butter is my favorite flavor of ice cream, now that's false. It was true when I thought it was my favorite, but now I've changed my personal favorite flavor of ice cream. So now the same statement is now false. And why? It's because... I changed my personal preference. Now the statement went from true to false. That's the key to identifying whether a claim is subjective or objective. Because objective truth claims, it doesn't matter what your opinion is. You could think that insulin helps control diabetes. That statement you could think is false. 
or you can think it's true. You can change your mind. It, changing your mind isn't going to change the status of what insulin is. Insulin is what it is, regardless of your opinion about it. Another quick example of a subjective truth claim is someone to say, I love Marvel movies, right? You know, Marvel's made a, a ton of movies these days. Uh, and someone says, yeah, I, I, I like Marvel movies. Somebody says, no, I don't like Marvel movies. Those are expressions of subjective preferences. Whereas the claim that Marvel has made 52 movies, that's an objective truth claim. It's something that we can test. It's either true or it's false. And if it's true for me, it's true for everybody. So do you guys have a sense for the difference here between subjective and objective? Are we we good with that? Okay, ready for the test? All right, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to put down on the screen a number of statements. And I want you to guess whether the statement is a subjective truth claim or an objective truth claim. If it's a subjective truth claim, I want you to say ice cream. If you think it's an objective truth claim, I want you to say insulin. Okay? So the only thing I want to hear is ice cream or insulin from you guys. Okay? Now, we're going to start with some easy ones to kind of get your juices flowing. You know, maybe the coffee hasn't taken effect just yet. So we'll, we'll kind of get you warmed up. Right? So let's try the first one. Disneyland has 53 attractions. Ice cream or insulin? Yeah, insulin. Right? It's a it's an objective claim. It's a claim about reality, right? And by the way, if the answer was that it actually only has 51, would it now become an ice cream claim? No, exactly. Very good. All right. How about this one? I like Toyota more than Nissan. Ice cream. That's right. Very good. Just an ice cream claim. It's a personal matter of personal preference, okay? I'm not saying Toyota makes more cars than Nissan. I'm not saying Toyota has higher value than Nissan. I'm just saying I prefer Toyota versus Nissan. How about this? I can bench press 315 pounds. <laughs> it's always something false, right? No, I didn't ask if it's true or false, okay? Uh, no, but I heard a lot of you get the correct answer. It is an insulin type of ice cream. I mean, I'm sorry, it's an insulin type of... Um... <clears throat> now, wouldn't that be great if we had insulin ice cream, right? Because then you have the flavor and the treatment all in one. That, ah, it's a marketing idea. Okay, it's my idea, by the way. No, so yeah, that's, a, that's an insulin claim. That's something that we could test, right? I mean, we, could, we can get a bench press here. Maybe, you know, Isaac can bring us a bench up here. Set it up, right? And we could test to see whether I can really bench 315 pounds. And I can, by the way. I know you're looking at me thinking, gosh, he's so thin and scrawny. How could he do that? But if I flex right now, my, my pecs would just rip right through my shirt. <laughs> but we're at church, so I want to be modest. I don't want to show anybody up, you know. People might be intimidated by me. All right, let's do one more easy one here. The chairs in this room feel comfortable. Yeah, it's an ice cream claim. Okay, very good. Now, we've, enough with the easy stuff. Let's get to the real stuff. Now, don't feel bad if you get these wrong because we, are, we have been so conditioned by our culture to think a, a certain way. And everyone in our culture thinks the way that we're going to be looking at here when it comes to relativism. And it's, not, it's, it's very likely that we have been impacted by that thinking. Okay, so it'll probably get you, it might, it might be hard, I don't know, maybe you, got, you all surprised me, but most churches uh, don't get a lot of these, like 100% for the remainder of these, okay? Okay, slavery is wrong, ice cream or insulin? Okay, so I heard like 50-50 ice cream insulin, all right? The answer is, it's an insulin type of claim. Now, let me explain to you why that is. I know some of you are thinking, no, it's an ice cream claim, because some people think slavery is right, some people think it's wrong, but it doesn't matter what people's preferences is. Notice this claim is not 
I like slavery or I don't like slavery. The claim is about slavery, this idea that's out there in the real world. Is it right or is it wrong? That's a question about external reality. Okay? So that's why I'm saying it is a claim about external reality. Therefore, it's an objective claim. It's a claim. It's an insulin type of claim. Okay? Let's try another one. Um, oh, there we go. God does, okay, God does not exist. Ice cream or insulin? <laughs> Correct. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so it's an insulin claim. My, my, my clicker actually advanced a little bit too far. Okay, now even though we believe God does exist, all right, this is a claim about the nature of whether God exists. And, the pers- and this statement says, God does not exist. So notice, it's not an expression of a preference. It's an expression about the nature of whether God exists. And whether he exists or doesn't exist has no, uh, is, not re- is not related to whether we want him to or we prefer him to. Or even if nobody believed he existed or if everybody believed he existed, it doesn't change whether God exists. He exists or he doesn't. And and our preferences don't matter. So that's why it's an insulin type of claim. The Bible is my favorite book. Okay, that one's pretty obvious, right? Ice cream. How about this? Jesus is the only way to God, so Jews and Muslims are mistaken. Okay, I heard, I heard more insulin that time, which, which you would be correct. Okay, then I heard ice cream, so that's good. Yeah, so you're kind of getting it. Again, I'm not saying... Um, I don't like Jews or I don't like Muslims or something like that. No, no, what I'm talking about, it's not a personal preference. Jesus is either the only way or he's not. And that's just the fact of the matter. Now, we could be wrong about that as Christians, okay? But that's not what, we're, that's not what this question's about. It's not are we right or wrong. The question is, is, is Jesus the only way? He either is or isn't. And that's a matter of the state of reality of, our, of, of what's, what's true and, and the ultimate furniture of the universe in a sense. And then let's do one more. Uh, it's okay to cheat on tests. How many say it's ice cream? How many say it's insulin? Oh, okay. So majority has is, got the correct answer. It is also an insulin claim. Okay. Again, it's not saying I like to cheat on ice cream. Uh, on ice cream. I am, I am really stuck on ice cream. And for good reason, as I said, it's, it deeply moves me. You know, it's like, so I guess it makes sense. Um, it, I'm not saying I like to cheat on tests. Didn't say ice cream, thank God. I'm not saying I don't like to cheat on tests or I do like to cheat on tests. I'm saying cheating on tests is is wrong, okay? And that's something that we can kind of evaluate or cheating on tests is okay. That is a claim, that is a statement about reality that we can evaluate. We can reflect philosophically, morally, uh, logically about that claim to see whether it's true or false. And that's why it's a insulin type of claim, all right? So so pretty good. I'll I'll give you guys a, a B, on your test, so it's not, not too bad, <laughs> not too bad. Now, I want you to understand what I'm doing here because relativism, at its core, treats everything like a subjective truth claim. Relativism treats everything in reality like ice cream claims, like just a matter of personal preference. You just pick what you like. And so, therefore, relativism denies that knowledge Uh, about truth, about morality, about religion. It denies that all those things are out there in the real world. Rather, they're all just personal preferences, expressions of what we like and don't like, right? And so there is no objective truth. There is no state of affairs out there in the world, okay? You are the arbiter of what's true. You are the arbiter of whatever, of everything, of reality. And that's why people refer to it and say, everything is true for you. That is an expression of relativism. And so truth then becomes 
relative to the subject, me or you, as opposed to objects or things that are out there. And this is the big problem. In fact, as Alan Bloom, a professor back in 1987, noted about the nature of students that were entering the university, he said there's one thing that a professor can be absolutely sure of. Almost every student that's entering the university believes, or says he believes, that truth is relative. That's just a matter of subjective preference, every kind of truth. The students, of course, cannot defend their opinion. It is something with which they have been indoctrinated. Now, I know you might be tempted to think, well, this is just some professor saying this, but in reality, you know, he's just speaking kind of in the ivory towers and it has no real relevance. Like, people don't actually think that. But I would say he's actually very correct. In fact, I want to show you a video uh, of a guy I know who went to a university. And now this guy is a short white male. And he went around the university and began to ask students some questions about the nature of reality. And I want you to see how they responded, okay? Most of these students, as you'll see, uh, definitely believe that relativism is the way to go. Let's check this video out. If I told you that I was a woman, what would your response be? Good for you, okay, like, <laughs> yeah. Nice to meet you. I'll be like, what? <laughs> really? I don't have a problem with it. I'd ask you how you came to that conclusion. If I told you that I was Chinese, what would your response be? I mean, I might be a little surprised, but I would say, good for you. Like, yeah, be who you are. <laughs> I would maybe think you had some Chinese ancestor. I would ask you how you similarly came to that conclusion and why you came to that conclusion. Um, I would have a lot of questions, just because on the outside, I would assume that you're a white man. If I told you that I was seven years old, what would your response be? I wouldn't believe that immediately. Uh, I probably wouldn't believe it, but I mean, I it wouldn't really bother me that much to go out of my way and tell you no, you're wrong. I'd just be like, oh, okay, he wants to say he's seven years old. If you feel seven at heart, then, <laughs> then so be it. Yeah, good for you. <laughs> so if I wanted to enroll in a first grade class, do you think I should be allowed to? Uh, probably not, I guess. I mean, unless you haven't completed first grade up to this point and for some reason need to do that now if that's where you feel like mentally you should be then i feel like there are communities that would accept you for that i would say so long as you're not hindering society and you're not causing harm to other people i feel like that should be an okay thing if i told you i'm six feet five inches what would you say that i would question why <laughs> Because you're not. <laughs> no, I don't think you're 6'5". If you truly believed you're 6'5", I don't think it's harmful. I think it's fine if you believe that. It doesn't matter to me if you think you're taller than you are. So you'd be willing to tell me I'm wrong? I wouldn't tell you you're wrong. No, but I say that um, I don't think that you are. I feel like that's not my place as like another human to say someone is wrong or to draw lines or boundaries. No, I mean, I wouldn't just go like, oh, you're wrong. Like, that's wrong to believe in it. Because, I mean, again, it doesn't really bother me what you want to think about your height or anything. So I can be a Chinese woman. You... <laughs> um, sure. But I can't be a six foot five Chinese woman. Yes. If you thoroughly debated me or explained why you felt that you were six foot five, uh, I feel like I would be very open to saying that you're six foot five or Chinese or a woman. 
we're in a heap of trouble. Uh, <laughs> so uh, I want you to notice a couple of things about that video. Number one, notice most people who were responding to his, his claims were just basically saying, yeah, good for you. If, if that's how you feel, right? If you truly believe that, right? Even obvious facts about like reality, height or ethnicity or, or age were treated just like ice cream claims, right? If that's how you feel inside, then that's fine. That's your reality. That's your truth. Okay? So that's one thing. But second of all, notice it was very difficult for anyone to say, no, you're wrong. <laughs> Sorry, you're mistaken. You know? Because there's, there's something else going on about the, the, the fear of people being labeled as intolerant, which we'll get towards here to the end. But, um, I mean, it just seems like, man, it's really, it's really the case, like Alan Bloom was saying. Everybody who comes to the university believes that truth is relative to them. And that's why if someone else says something that they believe is true about themselves, you just have to accept it, right? Because that's their truth. Now, this is also just not hypothetical. Like, I know people were being asked this sort of question about the nature of someone's age or someone's ethnicity. But the reality is that actual people think and operate this way for real. Uh, I'll give you an example. Rachel Dalzal, who is a white woman, she decided to identify as a black person. In fact, she was the chapter president of the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. Until people wondered, well, wait a minute, you're not black. She, but I, this is how I identify. Okay? In fact, listen to what she says. Let me just ask you the question in, in simple terms again, because you've sent mixed signals over the years. Are you an African-American woman? I identify as black. I identify as black. But look, here's a picture of when she's a kid. She's a white girl, right? But it's, it, it's a, no problem because, again, if truth is inside you, if truth is simply relative to what you personally believe, then you can identify as a black person even though you're white, all right? It's incredible. Um, uh, talking about the issue of age, Emil Rattleband, who's a uh, TV personality, he's, he's Dutch, uh, 69-year-old guy, or 68 years old, I can't remember when the video was done, but he says, you know what? I just feel so young and youthful. I, I identify as a 49-year-old. And so I don't just identify. I want the courts to change my legal age to be 49 because that's how I actually feel inside. In fact, listen to him making his case here. So, and I, I feel I suffer under my age because I'm much more younger then I'm 68. So when I ask for a mortgage, for example, they say, it's impossible. If I go on Tinder, you know, then I get women from, from 68, uh, 69, uh, when the women are there. And when I'm on Tinder, you know, the, uh, then they say, okay, then you can lie for your age. You say you're 49. I don't want to lie. I want to be myself. So don't force me to lie. But when I'm really 49 again, I will have a baby again. I will buy a new car again. I will paint my house again. I'm going outside and I invest my money again. Because now I'm an old man, you know, I have to save my money to give to my kids so they can live. But if I have that age again, I have hope again. I'm new again. And there, the whole future is there for me again. Oh. <laughs> Jesus, come quickly. Uh, <clears throat> so what's crazy about it, did you hear what he said? So they're like, He's like, well, I want to go on Tinder, this dating app, right, to get uh, women who are uh, 49 instead of 69, right? So they tell him, well, just lie. Just on the app, just put your age as 49. And he goes, he says, I don't want to lie. 
Well, it's not like as if the courts change your actual age, you'll all of a sudden be 49. I mean, it's just puzzling to me even how these people think. But again, they have been so saturated with relativistic thinking that when it comes to truth, it's all about what's inside you. However you feel is, is, becomes this reality, all right? And so our culture, as you can see, has swallowed the poison pill of relativism. And we've abandoned the idea that there are things out there in the world that are just either true or false, and there's nothing that you can do to change them, okay? We have reduced all those things to inside us, okay? And uh, if you really wanted to get a, an understanding as to how we have progressed in the last 50 years to get to this point, there's a book written by a guy named Carl Truman. The book is called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, and in this book, he kind of just describes the process that has led to where we are today. Uh, and, and basically, he talks about this idea of called expressive individualism. Expressive individualism. And, and that's just the idea that, yeah, what we believe inside us is what's true. And he says that the, the problem is not just that what we believe inside us is true about reality. It's that we give total authority to our inner feelings. We give total authority to our inner thoughts. Complete authority about everything, not just preferences like about ice cream, but even about external reality, biological reality. So our world obviously is deeply confused about the, uh, the notion of truth. Uh, nobody understands it today. And, and, you know, you read the gospel accounts, and even when, you know, Pilate was, you know, presiding over the trial of Jesus, remember what Pilate said. He says, well, what is truth? Right? So even he was asking that question even at the time. Now, when he asked it, he didn't really stick around to kind of hear the answer. Okay? So um, I want to provide you a definition for truth. Uh, and, and Pilate, if you're listening, pay attention. Okay? Here. <laughs> I shouldn't look that way. He's probably that way. I, I don't know where he is. But um, <clears throat> what, what is, how do we understand truth? How do we define truth? Well, uh, I believe it's called the correspondence theory of truth. It's something that uh, Aristotle developed, or not developed, but I should say described. That's right. He described it. And this was even known in Jesus' time because, of course, Aristotle lived before him. Uh, and this is how Aristotle defines the correspondence theory of truth. He says this, if you say that it is, and it is, or you say that it isn't, and it isn't, that's true. If you say that it isn't, and it is, or you say that it is, and it isn't, that's false. Crystal clear, right? I, don't you just love philosophers? You're just Make everything so, so straightforward. Okay, let me, let me put it to you in uh, more understandable terms. Okay. Truth basically is what corresponds to reality. Truth is what corresponds to reality. That's why they call it the correspondence theory of truth. All right? So, for example, if I was to say, I have a full tank of gas in my car. Okay? That's my claim. Then I go to my car, and I check the gas gauge, and it shows that it's full. So, notice... Reality matches my claim. Okay, so therefore that claim would be true, right? Makes perfect sense, right? This is very intuitive to us. If you go to your car and the car shows that the gas tank is empty, then my claim that I have a full tank of gas does not match reality. It does not correspond to reality. So therefore my claim would be false, okay? This is, I would argue, self-evident, like this definition of truth. It is self-evident and I would argue also it's universally acknowledged. Now, I know I sometimes get pushback when I say that. People say, but I don't know, no, no, no. In India or in Eastern religions, you know, they have a different form of thinking. They have a different, they're, they're okay with contradiction. 
There's no, you know, this is Western logic you're talking about. This is just American thinking and logic. And I wholeheartedly disagree. Because even the Hindu, when he comes to cross a street, he stops. And what does he do? He looks both ways. Why? Because he wants to know whether his belief, his claim, that there is no truck barreling down the street matches reality or not. Right? If he picks up a pill to, to ingest, he wants to know, is that aspirin or is it arsenic? Right? Very big deal that you, your beliefs match up with reality. Okay? So here's the problem. People typically will follow, people in our culture, and even it means Christians, will follow the correspondence theory of truth. They'll definitely operate in that way for, for a lot of things because literally your life depends on it. Until you start talking about morality or until you start talking about religion and religious beliefs. Then all of a sudden, the correspondence theory of truth goes out the window. And that's why when you took that test, some of you were tempted to say, no, uh, something about the nature of God or about slavery, which is really a moral issue, those aren't objective things, they're subjective things, right? Because again, talking about morality or religion, all of a sudden now we want to say morality and religion aren't out there in that world, they're in our, in our hearts, in our, in our souls, you know, kind of thing. Um, and again, the reason why this has happened is because relativism, Right? You just pick what you like. We treat morals and religion like that. So if you take this idea of relativism, that what's true is up to you, and you apply it to morality, what you get is what's called uh, moral relativism, right? And so moral relativism is just simply the idea that you decide what's right and wrong, okay? Somebody disagrees with you, that's fine. They have their own idea of what's right and wrong. Each person has their own idea of what is, what is right and wrong. And so, for example, you know, when it comes to sexuality, some people would say, yeah, sexuality and sexual activity outside of marriage is, is wrong. Other people would say, no, it's fine. And we would say, yeah, and you're both right, even though you disagree, right? There's no moral rule out there that says sex outside of marriage is wrong. And so it, 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 doesn't, it doesn't bear on all of us. Those rules are all inside our hearts. When it comes to taxes and, you know, should you cheat on your taxes or pay your full taxes? Some people say it's wrong to cheat on your taxes. Some people say it's right. There is no rule out there that says it's right or wrong. The rules are all just inside our own hearts. And we pick and choose which ones we want to follow. Okay. And so modern uh, statements that express this moral relativism would be things like, yeah, what's right and wrong is up to you or is up to me. To each his own. Don't force your morals on me. You shouldn't judge other people. All of those statements are simply a person expressing moral relativism. Okay? Uh, a Barnapole, uh, back in 2015, asked Christians, well, asked a bunch of people, but asked Christians also, do you think morals are absolute or relative? And by the word absolute, that's just another word for objective. Okay? In other words, are morals that are things out there that we have to abide by, or is right and wrong just inside our own hearts? Okay, 59% of Christians say it's absolute or objective, which means 41% of Christians said it's not objective, it's not out there, it's just in our heart, or they really hadn't even thought about the question, okay? which either way is not a good sign. So notice this is affecting the church because again, we live in a culture and our culture is swimming in this idea, so it's not surprising uh, that uh, it eventually sort of work its way into everyday believers' lives. Now, if you take this idea of relativism and you apply it to religion, you get what's called religious pluralism, all right? And this is the idea that when it comes to 
what religion you should adhere to. Again, you just pick what you like. It's like choosing your favorite flavor of ice cream. I like Christianity. Oh, I like Buddhism. No, I like Islam. Hey, whatever you want, just pick what you like. Right? And so uh, statements that would express this idea would be things like, all roads lead to Rome. You've probably heard people say that. Or all paths lead to God. Or different strokes for different folks. You know, I get lots of people say to me, Alan, oh, I'm so glad you found Jesus to be true. Oh, that's so sweet, so precious. But he's not true for me. I mean, he's true for you, but he's not true for me, you know? So again, everything is relegated to personal preference. And when it came to a poll done uh, regarding religious pluralism, they asked, uh, do you believe your religion is the one true faith? Okay, only 41% of evangelicals said yes. So the majority of evangelicals were like, no, like other religions are also ways that you can get to heaven. Now, again, I'd expect that kind of thinking from secular culture, but the problem is, is that the church has become infected with this poisonous thinking, and it's affecting how we then do church and how we live our lives. And this is, this, this is tragic, because the church cannot accept relativism and expect that it's not going to have any kind of negative consequences. And the reason is, is because all ideas have consequences, right? All ideas have consequences. And bad ideas have what? They have victims. <laughs> okay? Yeah, they got bad consequences. They got victims. Um, I, I know I'm going to say a German phrase here, so if those of you who speak German, I apologize for the, <laughs> my, my pronunciation, but there's a German phrase that says, Lebens and Wertes Leben, which means life unworthy of life. This was an idea that was central to the thinking of the Third Reich, which eventually was an idea that had serious consequences. Serious victims, right? Six million Jews killed, another 11 million other people, you know, Soviets and gypsies and Serbs and homosexuals and a whole bunch of people just slaughtered in the, uh, in the name of this idea that there is a life that does not deserve to live because ideas have consequences. So let me just explain to you two concerning consequences that relativism has in the church. The first is this, relativism undermines sin and the gospel, which of course is, you know, the big enchilada right for us, right? Now, why do I say that relativism undermines sin and the gospel? Well, think about it. The only way that we believe sin is real is if we believe in what's called objective morality. Okay, I already talked about this, but this is the idea that there is out there in the universe, out there in the world, a set of, 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 of standards, of what God, how God, how God wants us to live, okay? Objective morality, you know? This is sin, this is sin, you know, this is good, this is a virtue, this is a vice. It's all out there. It's not in here, it's out there, okay? That's what we believe as Christians. That's what the, the Bible teaches. And so if that standard exists and we break that standard, well, then, of course, notice we've committed a sin. And if you commit a sin, then notice you are guilty. And if you are guilty, well, then, of course, you deserve to be punished, and so the only way to get around that is to be pardoned. And how do we get pardoned? Well, it's through Jesus, right? So that's how normally it would work. But here's the problem. When you adopt relativism, you basically eliminate objective morality. That standard that's out there doesn't exist anymore. It now comes inside here. And so if there's no objective standard, then there's no necessarily rule you break, so you can't commit a sin. And if you're not committing a sin, well, of course, then you're not guilty. And if you're not guilty, well, then... You don't need a pardon. 
And if you don't need a pardon, guess what else you don't need? You don't need Jesus. So this is why I say relativism undermines sin and the gospel. Uh, I'm reminded of, uh, um, in, in the book of Judges, uh, you know, it's a story, of course, you have of, of people of God who, who try to follow after the ways of God, and then, of course, they stray, and then God sends a judge and eventually kind of brings the people back around, and then they start to follow the ways of God. But then, they, of course, they turn away again. It's just this cycle of, of obedience and, and sin and so on and so forth. And the very last verse of the entire book of Judges is Judges 21, 25. And it says, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's moral relativism, right? Because when there's no king, there's no standard by which we need to abide by, right? If there's no God, then there's no standard that God provides that we have to abide by. And so it's like Christians who are operating like that are operating like a functional atheist. We're living as if there's no God, I mean, we might say there is a God, but we don't certainly act like it because we don't believe there's, he has a standard out there that we have to um, obey. I love what C.S. Lewis uh, wrote about this very point. He says, it is after you have realized that there is a moral law and there is a power behind that law and that you have broken that law and that you have put yourself wrong with that power, it is after this and not a moment sooner that Christianity begins to talk, Right? If, if there's a law and there's God behind that law enforcing that law, if you believe that and you've, you've broken that law, now you're in a heap of trouble, right? But if you don't believe that, Christianity doesn't talk. It's irrelevant. And that's what I mean. Relativism undermines the gospel because it eliminates that law and, of course, the power behind that law. So that's the first thing is that relativism will undermine sin in the gospel uh, second of all, I think the consequence of the church adopting relativism is that it just undermines our whole call to missions. You recall that Jesus said in Matthew 28, the Great Commission, he says, go and make disciples of all nations, right? But think about it for a moment. If relativism is true and there's no like, yes, this religion is true and this religion is false, if that doesn't exist, and you just pick whatever religion you like, just as if like you're picking your favorite flavor of ice cream, then why try to go and tell other people about Christianity, right? Would, would you do that with ice cream flavors? Would you be like, hey, everybody must like chocolate peanut butter ice cream. Wait, you, you like a different flavor? No, no, you got to change it. Like, who would do that, right? I mean, there might be some people that are psychotic, right? But, but no, generally we don't do that. And so since people think religion is just like picking your favorite flavor of ice cream, they also think, well, yeah, why would I impose that on somebody else? They don't like the flavor of Christianity, so let them like whatever flavor they like. So why go and make disciples of all nations? There's, there's no point if you've adopted relativism as a way of understanding the nature of reality. There was a LifeWay study done back in 2019 asking, basically, Christians, how many times in the last six months have you shared the gospel with someone? 55% said zero, right? And, then, and now you might say, well, they might chalk that up to, like, they're nervous or whatever. But, I mean, most likely what's going on is they don't feel there's any kind of compelling reason to, right? If you've adopted a relativism, which other studies show has happened, then there's no need to try to tell other people about the gospel, <clears throat> What did Jesus say, by the way, about the nature of the gospel and about with regard to the nature of is, is religious belief, is it something that's out there or is it in here? Listen to what Jesus says about this. 
John 14, 6, he says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Okay? Now, notice he didn't say, I am one of the ways, I am one of the truths, I am one of the possible lives. You can come to the Father through me or someone else. It's all good. Live and believe whatever you believe, you know, whatever you choose. I'm cool with that. Just you do you, right? That's not how he said it, right? So, yeah, Second Opinions. Yeah, it's a great book. <laughs> yeah, I've had it inserted in my Bible just to fill it out a little bit. So, so this is the problem, is that the church has adopted relativism, and uh, re- related to the idea, related to this idea that we are nervous about trying to tell other people, hey, this behavior is wrong, or hey, this religion is true, part of the reason why we're concerned about that is because if we make a claim like that to somebody else, we're quite likely to be labeled a certain word. And that word that we're oftentimes afraid of being labeled is the word tolerance, okay? Or intolerant, right? We want to be considered tolerant. We don't want to be labeled intolerant, okay? But one of the reasons why relativism has become so popular is because of this fear of being labeled as intolerant. And so if you as a Christian take a moral stand on any subject or make a claim about the nature of Christianity, you will very quickly be labeled as intolerant. You know, hey, I think, I think it's wrong to kill innocent human beings through abortion. You're intolerant towards women. You know, I don't, I don't think the religion of Islam is true. I, I think there's some mistaken beliefs. I think, I think it's a false. You're intolerant towards Muslims. I, you know, I, I think, you know, the Bible teaches that homosexual behavior is so you're intolerant towards gays and lesbians. Like, she's like, no matter what you say, you're quickly slapped with a label intolerant. And so the, the fear of being labeled this way stifles critical thought. And of course, it also just, dis- it, it, it prevents productive discussion about matters, which I think are super important. But I would say that this fear is unjustified. And the reason is, is because there's actually two different definitions of tolerance that are being used in our culture. The wrong, the wrong definition and the right definition. Okay. Now, the culture is using the wrong definition. And this wrong definition is not just slightly off. It's literally the opposite of what the word actually means. So here's the culture's definition based on its usage, how they define tolerance. Tolerance is basically equated with agreement. If you agree with someone, you're tolerant of them, right? If you think homosexual activity is okay, you're tolerant of homosexuals. If you say homosexual activity is incorrect or false or immoral or sin, well, you're then intolerant of homosexuals. So notice, tolerance is equated basically with agreement. Now, this is not the way the word tolerance has been used in our society throughout our history, nor is it how it's defined even in in the dictionary. So I looked it up. Here's what it says. Tolerance is defined as this, to recognize and respect other people's beliefs and practices without sharing them. To bear or to put up with someone or something not necessarily liked. So notice, according to the actual definition of tolerance, it entails disagreement with a person, but still respecting that individual as, as, a, as a human being, okay? So notice, according to the true definition of tolerance, you must disagree with someone before it makes any sense to tolerate them, right? You don't, you don't tolerate people you agree with. They're on your side, the only way you can tolerate someone is if you first disagree with them, but you still respect them as an individual human being who's valuable. So notice, according to this definition of tolerance, Christians turn out to be the most tolerant people in culture. 
Why? Because we have principled objections against certain behaviors or certain ideas, but yet we still respect the people who hold those ideas, or at least we ought to, right? We still believe that they are valuable image bearers of God, that we should treat them with deserving, they should be deserving of, of dignity and respect. And so though we disagree with them, we still value them because they're valuable image bearers of God. That's true tolerance. It's Christians who can be credited with the virtue of tolerance. But the people generally around that are part of secular culture that are going around saying, yes, it's okay to do this. Homosexuality is okay and whatever. They're not, they can't be credited with the virtue of tolerance because they're just agreeing with other people. I mean, I'm not saying that's right or wrong at this point. I'm just simply saying you can't credit them for being tolerant. But if you have a significant disagreement with someone, but you still respect them as an individual, that is what true tolerance is. So that's, in a nutshell, the challenge that we face as Christians, Right? The culture that we live in today has bought into the poison pill of relativism. And as people who interact with those people and culture, we, of course, get affected by it as well. And this is why we have to stay vigilant and stand firm and not buy into relativistic thinking. Uh, and I know the concern about tolerance is a big deal. We don't want to be labeled names, and we don't like that, of course. And we tend, you know, some of us tend to be pleasers more than others. But man, we got to realize they're just, they, got the, they got the definition incorrectly. And so sometimes you just might have to clarify what that definition is. So let me close with a final thought here. But if, if there is a God, and I'm not here to make the case that God exists or whatever, that's a whole different thing. But of course we do believe there is a God. Since there is a God, God does have a standard of morality. He does have this objective standard that exists out there that is independent of our own preferences, desires, and wills. And so if that, if that objective standard exists, then it's quite likely that all of us have broken that standard at some point, right? Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned. We all fall short of the glory of God. And since we're all therefore lawbreakers, since we've all broken these rules, we are guilty. And what do we know about guilty people? They deserve to be punished. That's the bad news, right? But of course, the good news is that God offers us an opportunity to not be punished, but to be pardoned, right? Now, what religion offers a pardon? Well, guess what? There's only one religion that does that, right? And that pardon comes from God, and it's Christianity through Jesus. That's what Jesus is for. It's, it's for our opportunity to be pardoned for the crimes that we deserve to, be pay, to, to, um, to pay for. And that's why Jesus says in John 14, 6, which I quoted and, and then rewrote that verse, but uh, that's why Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That is Jesus in a nutshell saying religious pluralism is false. You can't just pick which, whatever religion you like because there's only one religion that offers a pardon and it's Christianity and it's through one person, Jesus. So let's thank God that we have come to know the truth despite our, 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 our law-breaking uh, attitude and life that we have received a pardon uh, through the grace of God. All right, let's close in prayer. Father, we are humbled by the fact that you have called us as Christians to be ambassadors for your son, Jesus, that you are willing to use us to be able to communicate the truth, to share the message, your message, about the opportunity of a pardon that you're making the rest of the world. Lord, I say we're humbled by that. We're also kind of scared by that, Lord, but we're thankful that your Holy Spirit lives in us, that gives us the courage, the wisdom, the power, and sometimes even the words to say as we communicate that. Lord, may we as a church body not be seduced by cultural ideas, especially of relativism. 
Help us to be vigilant, to stay alert, to be mindful of the influence of the culture, Lord, so that we don't compromise our convictions, we don't compromise your truth. And help us as we communicate with other people, Lord, this, these very same ideas, that we would be do it, doing it in a way that is kind, that is gracious, that is winsome, persuasive, yes, but also loving, kind, and gracious, Lord. May we do that because ultimately we want to bring honor and glory to your son, Jesus' name. Amen.